Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, everybody. Dr. Ross Green here. Welcome to another edition of the CPS Podcast. Today we are uh, covering a really important topic. Um, Why is there disproportionality in punitive exclusionary discipline in American public schools? And we have two um, guest hosts today. Uh, One is Alex Spencer, who is a former uh, principal in the Alternative Learning Centers in the New York City Public Schools. That's how I got to know him. Um, and Ben Jones is the Director of Legal and Policy Initiatives at Lives in the Balance. Um, you are welcome to call in to comment on today's topic, if you wish. We're also going to be trying to save the end of the program for your emails and calls about kids. Um, But I want to make sure that we give this topic um, its full due. So if we spend the entire day just on this topic, we will cover the emails and phone calls about other topics next week. But if you want to call in in the beginning of the program for this topic, the call-in number is 347-994-2988. One, I'm pressing number one. Ben and Alex, you're on. Yes. Hey. Welcome. So, to where do we begin? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ross. Good to talk to you. Hey, Ben. So, where? Hi, Alex. Go? Hi, Ross. I'm happy to kick us off. So, this is Ben Jones, and uh, I agree with Ross. It's an incredibly important topic. And we're going to get a bit of a window into one professional's experience, Alex, and a bit of my experience as well. And then I'm going to pepper in data, policy, national context as we go along, if that works for everybody. So, Alex, I think it would be helpful for folks listening to hear of what, what is the Alternative Learning Centers, how does New York City right. set up its uh, programs for kids that are excluded from the regular education, and and what was your experience there, just as a general uh, starting point? All right. Well, you know, uh, jump in and stop me if I uh, get uh, off off base, which happens all the time. Okay. So, <laughs> starting in uh, 2007, I was the founding principal for the Manhattan Ultimate Learning Centers, and this was a multi-site middle and high school. You know, we had between six and eight sites across the borough of Manhattan. Um, These sites were to serve students that were removed from their regular program, their regular school, uh, because they were serving a suspension. In New York State, you cannot send a kid home on suspension. You have a right to an education every day, and the school, the the system is responsible for providing an alternate setting. And uh, in addition, there was what we call the EB lawsuit against New York City, because prior to 2007, it was alleged that if you're on superintendent suspension, you were not receiving special education services, and 
you weren't getting real edu- real education, so you would end up failing the classes that you were missing, which they considered to be double jeopardy. And since all the things in the lawsuit were true, uh, the city had uh, come up with a settlement, and part of the settlement was to open up in each of the five boroughs uh, a multi-site school headed by a principal that would provide services. So we would take students from 10 days to a year, depending on infraction. Uh, like if you, if you punched somebody on Monday, you would come to an alternate learning center on Tuesday. And, it, and, I, and I think uh, New York is a strange animal because it's such a huge system. At that time, there were 1.1 million kids in the system. So I don't know that any other system could have a suspension program as huge as New York City's was because with just yeah. 1.5% of the population ever receiving a two-tenth suspension, a very severe suspension, it's still made up for like 15,000 kids a year coming through the site. 10, yeah, 15, and 000. Alex, let me, let me jump in and yeah. just restate how unique that is. It's certainly the largest district that has this alternative approach. Uh, it is the largest district as well in the country. Uh, but what is more typical for the context for every Buddy listening is 10 days is typically the span of time that a school principal or administrator could issue some type of exclusion under a suspension. And beyond that, there would be more due process that would be required, a hearing, right. a school board involvement, a state right. involvement, some type of higher level. So it's very, very unusual, very unique well, we have the for, same the, thing for New, York New York to do this. Yeah. Yeah, you could do a school-based removal, like an, in, an in-house for five days, even up to 10 days. But the um, 10 days to a year, there was always due process. All the students that came to us went through a whole hearing process. They always had a hearing at which they could plead no contest or go through a whole hearing procedure. So, how so that's how kids so ended, up, ended up into that's your how they, that's uh, how they program. Got it. Got it. So we started off um, with a premise that um, being with us was their punishment. So we weren't going to discipline the kids while they were with us. I didn't hire any deans. You know, I didn't have deans. I had, you know, assistant principals, guidance counselors, social workers, teachers, special ed teachers, but I didn't have disciplinarians working for me. And I tried not to hire um, people with that disciplinary mindset because going in I felt that our job was to re-engage. I started the school with the uh, the assumption that these kids were being were alienated from the learning process, and that our job was to reengage them. That it was whatever was not working in school, we had to figure out what that was and kind of get kids back on track. So we started off with um, well, just try to have a more empathetic environment, and we had some success. And we made sure that we did everything you would do in a regular school. HMI sites had to function like a very good small school. We had field trips. We had art. We had lots of special programs. In fact, some parents would complain that, why are you giving my kid a pizza party? Why are you taking my kid on a field trip? They're suspended. They're supposed to be punished. And I said, well, suspension is the punishment. We don't punish the kids while they're with us. That, that's not our goal. And because of that, we found that we had some success with the students while they were with us. But over time, we found that that success wasn't transitive, that the kids were going back to their home or their suspending school and being resuspended with a week or two weeks or three weeks. There was a very high recidivism. 
So um, around year seven is when I hooked up with Ross. And we tried a lot of different things. And my goal was to try and create some kind of a lasting change with the kids. And we found that using the model, the CPS model, we started to get some traction in terms of kids gaining some skills they lack and not being suspended. And Alex, so I think it'd be helpful story. if we, yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And just rounding back to our topic, disproportionality. So just yep. to give folks a context of, let's talk about the demographics of New York itself and then the demographics of the alternative school. And you can tell me what you saw for disproportionality. So New York city itself is more Latino, more black, more Asian than the country and the schools as well are more Latino, more black and more Asian than New York city at large. Uh, we know that more than half of the white kids in New York go to private school. And so the remaining percentage of kiddos that go to New York City public schools are 15% white as opposed to 30 plus for the New York City. So knowing that's the New York City makeup, were your kids within the alternative program, were they, two questions, were they more than 20% kids with disabilities because that's the New York City? data they were okay yeah. and then there were they more more than 70 percent black latino so we would run on register about 30 to 35 maybe 40 percent students with disabilities and on a day-to-day basis maybe 50 percent because their attendance rate was higher and then we were 95 98 percent black and latino i would say and okay. yeah. yeah and the yeah, yeah. so this there's a lot to say about that. Um, yeah, that students were dealt with very differently in the disciplinary process before and after they were suspended, depending on who they were. We had very few white students, and when they did go through the suspension system, they were treated very differently than the black students that, that went through. The black students that went through was like a, you know, it was like a, it was a, uh, it was almost like a rehearsal for the criminal justice system. You know, there was even a belief that if they uh, uh, took a no contest plea. It was the same as like uh, pleading to a lesser charge in the criminal justice system. And um, we had to explain that no, no contest just means that you admit what happened and you can still get the maximum suspension. So we there was a lot of that going on. Um, I think that also one of the things that I found out was that this population, the kids that were being suspended, and the kids that I, were, I had been were suspended had been in trouble most of their school careers. That I think the first or second year we had a, a field trip uh, going to the Museum of Modern Art, and a student, a 12th grader, he he forged the permission slip to go. And when we got back from the trip, and I asked him, why did you forge it? He said, well, I didn't think my mother would let me go on the trip. And I said, well, why not? He says, well, I've never been on a field trip. I've never, in his whole school career, from kindergarten to 12th grade, he had never been let out of the building on a field wow. trip. And that, and I had to kind of like take a step back, and that's kind of when I realized that the population that I was dealing with was very, very specific. As specific as kids that might be in a specialized school for math and science, these kids were just as specialized. That, um, you know, Rick Lavoy talks about reputation management. These kids had started the kindergarten with a reputation as a troublemaker. So this kid goes into the first grade classroom and says, "Well, 
Mrs. Jones told me all about you. I'm not going to have any of that this year. You know, he, these kids would carry the label of being a difficult kid from year to year throughout their whole school career. And when I tried to explain to adults what it might feel like to be one of these kids, I said, imagine if your whole school career and you took away all the field trips, all the good stuff about all the fun stuff. Imagine if you were one of those kids that I know when I was a teacher in East Harlem, if I was going on a field trip, the principal would come out of the office and walk up and down the line, and he'd pull kids off of the line, even though they had permission slips, and say, Spencer, you're not letting, those kids, you're not letting that kid out of the building. So those were the kids that we served. These kids had been mm-hmm. in trouble every year, year after year. And he wanted to go on the trip, and we had no problems with him. But he was afraid he wouldn't get to go. And that was the only field trip the kid ever went to in his whole school career. So, and the other, the other, just I didn't think we'd talk yeah, about I, this as much, but no, 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 that this is great. Uh, is gender? So, oh yeah, it, you yeah, know mostly, the, the makeup of students are mostly we have, half and half. We have, uh, what was we the makeup? A, I would say seventy percent male, thirty percent girl. Female. Okay. Um, yeah, so that that's help that helps to give also the national like you said, coming into your school system, disproportionality was very clear and when they left, disproportionality was very clear. Perhaps when they were with you, there was a suspension of that yeah. um uh, that application uh being disproportionate. I, I, but what we I, I, Yeah. No, I was gonna say one of the things that uh that we don't think about is how vulnerable the kids are. You know, when we see kids that are causing trouble, and especially if you're a black kid or a Latino kid, you know, adults, we react to them very differently. You know, we we feel threatened by them or afraid of them. or uh, and These kids are very, very vulnerable. And sometimes because they present as being so tough, we don't realize how vulnerable they are. And mm. They always lose. I try to explain it. Anytime there's a conflict between one of these students and an adult, the kid always loses. It never goes well for the kid. And and even in terms of uh, corporal punishment, you know, corporal punishment is uh, against the rules in New York. You cannot beat a kid. You cannot hit a kid. You can't lay your hands on a kid. And yet it happens. And the population that I served were the victims of corporal punishment at a very high rate. And I, I, you know, one of the things that kind of broke my heart was I had a, a situation where I had a staff member, unbeknownst to me, who was systematically with a group of other staff members um, beating kids. And we yeah. finally opened up a bunch of Yeah, yeah, taking them to the bathroom, and they, they were called tuning them up. And I found out about it and opened up some investigations. And it, one investigation led to another until I had, like, 25 cases. And I had to enlist the help of the investigators from Office of Special Investigations. And we had 13 sustained cases. Some of them I had videotape of him assaulting kids. In one case, he ripped the kid's shirt off and pushed him into a room bare-chested. I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wow. And then we took, yeah. it, we took the whole thing to, to a, a termination, a 3020A, where you terminate a tenured pedagogue. And in that hearing... You know, the arbitrator, who was white, and this is a black staff member, by the way, a black staff member, he just he told the arbitrator that the arbitrator didn't understand the culture and that, that kind of like a certain level of violence was a language, the only language that these kids understood, and that he was doing it for their own good. And to be honest, this staff member that was assaulting kids was 
he got along very well with the parents and the families of these kids. Very few of the parents were complaining about it because he would tell them how disrespectful the kid was, and the parents would say, well, well if he did that, then, you know, you have license to do what you need to do. So, the, hmm. so it's almost as if even black adults have a lack of empathy for the black kids that are acting out. You know, Ross always talks about kids are lucky or unlucky in, mm-hmm. in terms of what they do when they're not doing well. And I would say, well, there's an empathy gap. Ross will say, like, if you're lucky, when you're having difficulty, you display behavior that gets you empathy from the adults and that, that are responsible for your care. Well, some of these kids that I dealt with, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old black males, Latino males who live in tough neighborhoods, they get little to no empathy from the adults that are charged with their care. So they exhibit any kind of behavior that's, oh, they yell, they run, they whatever they do, they are punished harshly, sometimes by the family and definitely by the schools. So there's a, a huge gap in the empathy that we show these kids. They, are, they live their lives with almost no empathy being shown to them. And when you do show them empathy, it's like it's like water to a, 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 a man that's in a desert. They drink it down. The model works for them because they're not used to having – they're not used to being dealt with empathetically. So when they are, they uh, they take to it, and they appreciate it. Sorry, right. I rambled. I tend to no, that. it's okay. No, it's all – thank you. Uh, yeah, just to give some of the – more of the national context, you mentioned yes. – Corporal punishment not being yep. legal in New York, that's been reiterated. Right. The Board of Regents just wrote it down again uh, because they heard about happening. But I think it's important to note you, when you see on the ground things happening like this and there's no data to show for it, it just shows how big of a gap in the data there is. So we know mm-hmm. about a certain amount of corporal punishment, 70,000 plus in the, in the U.S., but it's likely yep. much higher from un, unreported in these. Oh, specific spots. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, could you, cause that's, that's come up. So we, we go around the country advocating, raising public awareness, helping folks where we can to move the ball on kids being safe in school, getting effective resources. And you mentioned, you mentioned this cultural black, black cultural approach to discipline. That's certainly not. Yeah a majority of folks, but we have heard that from no, the black community. Can majority. you speak? Yeah. Can you speak just more gen outside of just that one experience with that one teacher? Can you speak a bit, a little bit about that as far as you feel able? I had a, uh, I had great parents. Uh, I was very fortunate. Parents are middle class, you know, educated. I got the best the educational system uh, could offer, but when I ran my mouth, I got popped. You know, I got hit. Um, I didn't think it was not acceptable. And uh, a lot of us have been hit as children. And a lot of us don't think there was anything wrong with it. Uh, they, we, we joke a lot when we, you know, we, the, the joke is always, oh, you know, we're in, the, we're in the store and we see some parent and the kid is, you know, smashing jars on the floor and the parent is just saying, Brandon, uh, do we smash jars, you know. And it's a joke, and we talk about what our parents would have done to us if we did the same thing in the same context. But, but, is that good? You know, there's a a great book. It's called uh, Spare the Kids 
Why Whooping Children Won't Save Black America by Stacey Patton. And she does a deep dive into corporal punishment in our culture. She's very critical of it. And she says that, you know, that, that again, we have to kind of take some responsibility for the negative effects that corporal punishment have on our children. That what are, what are we doing? Why, uh, and what does that do to the psychology of a child when a child gets beaten? You know, you'll say, oh, well, if I don't hit him, he doesn't know it's wrong. I'm like, is that true? And really? Does that really, does that really teach the child? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that. I, in fact, I'm sure that it doesn't actually. Also, you know, again, vulnerability, vulnerability. So, black children with difficulties are very, very vulnerable. Latino kids with difficulties are very, very vulnerable, because, you know, anything that's bad in the general population is generally particularly bad for us. That. Yeah. Um, if you come from a, a family with resources, if you come from a family with options, if you come from a family that, you know, has a social economical power, cultural power, then the bad practices in a school, they don't help, but they don't destroy your future. Whereas for black and Latino kids that are, you know, struggling, what happens in a school can tremendously affect your life. You know, Lainey Grenier wrote a book called The Canary in the Coal Mine. It's like what's bad for everybody is particularly bad for our kids. And yet yes. we accept it. We accept it. I and mean, it's a problem. It's a problem. And just to give a little bit more of that national context, this bears out in all of the data and research as well. Black boys are three times more likely than white boys to be suspended or expelled. Yep. And then once you're, once you get into the category of disability, so You've got a doubling effect of vulnerability, as you and by say. The way, so, suspended for the same for the same infraction. I mean, it's not just oh, they're right. more likely to be suspended. It's like if the kid brings a joint to school, what happens to him afterwards is very race dependent. If a kid brings a knife to school, what happens afterwards is very race dependent. You know, so it's not just oh, the kids are more likely to be suspended. No, for the same infraction. Oh, we would see right. that in New York. So we we did have white students but the system dealt with them very differently. You know, I had a kid, we had a kid, uh, a white student who sexually assaulted a staff member. And when he came to one of my sites, a whole bunch of guys from safety came down, guys in suits, and they came down to make sure that he would be safe from my other students. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, man. Yeah, you, you know, <laughs> you can't make it up. I'm sitting here in my... And I'm sitting here going like, oh, this is great. They're going to come down and check because, you know, I've got female staff members, young ladies. This guy has a history of some sexual violence. And, no, he was coming to make sure that he was safe from my, you know, my tough kids from East Harlem, my tough kids from Central Harlem who had been there for, you know, whatever, a fight in the cafeteria. Yeah. So it, it, it gets thrown in your face continually that when the rare times white students would come to one of my sites, there would always be somebody from downtown making sure that nothing happened. And there was a concern, well, is it okay to have them in the same site with all these other kids? What do you mean other kids? Kids are kids. But there was definitely a different level of concern for their well-being. Right. Yeah, that's stark. Uh, yeah, just to, to layer that piece on, so in a very general sense, if you're a kid with a disability, 
you're, you've got mm. about twice as much chance of being suspended, expelled. You've got twice as much chance of be, being restrained yep. or secluded, even more. And then oh, you yeah. layer on race, and we have this data piece, too, that's another doubling effect. So if you're a black no, it's a, child it's a perfect, with... It's a perfect storm. Perfect storm. Right. So if you're a black yeah. child with a disability, you are yeah. even twice more against. So, so what we know is that 17% of kids with disabilities are black kids, which is a little bit more than the general population, but it's close. But it's highly disproportional, the kiddos who are excluded. So black kids with disabilities make up 44% of all kids with disabilities suspended or expelled. So you the, can, yeah. the, the hardest part of my job for me to live with was not feeling like I was just a conductor on the school-to-prison pipeline, you know, that, mm. you know, it was like, how do I not just, you know, pave the way for a kid to go from a suspension to a criminal charge to prison? You know, how do I change the trajectory? Because right. that's what we were ta- – to me, not, and everybody that did what I did didn't have the same feeling about the work. You know, I even had people who worked with me who I had to convince that the other opportunities would be better for them because they spent a lot of their time trying to help kids along into prison. You know, there are rules about what you can share with police and what you can't share with police, and under what circumstances you can share that information. And I had to be very, very uh, tough on my staff not to help the police to put together cases on some of these kids. A lot of my kids had criminal involvement. You know, and it's not our job to help the police get the the uh, evidence they need to convict the kid. And yet some staff right. members would feel that, you know, that it was their duty to kind of be, um, to aid the police in their in their jobs as opposed to us doing our job. Our job, we are in local parentis, right? I'd say this is in local parentis from 8 to 3 with the moral and legal obligations of a parent. So we have to do the best to help this kid. Our job is not to help the kid be locked up. Our job is to change the trajectory and try and get the kid back on track so he can be successful, so he can have a life. Well, you talked about lucky, and those those kids were lucky to be with you, I think. Um, let me quickly check in with Ross. We've blown past yeah, our 20 please. minutes. Ross, do you Are want us really? to continue on, or do you want to jump into your questions? Continue on, but burning <laughs> question. Burning question. Why? Oh, boy. Why? (laughs) (laughs) We know the the stats. You've you've alluded to it a little bit. um, But it would be great if we could be even more explicit, not just about the fact that there is disproportionality, but also your respective thoughts on what that's wow. about. I'm so glad you brought that up, Ross, because right here now in the next three minutes, we're going to solve racism once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> Good news, Alice, we're going to solve. Got, we've got 18 minutes to solve racism. 18 minutes so to solve racism. Man. Then we need some more topics. Time, yeah. It's yeah. about time we got around to solving racism, Ross, you know? <laughs> but I think that, you know, when it's, the, the problem with saying racism is that nobody believes themselves to be racist. And, and, and what's worse is 
it's people are not sitting there saying, "Hey, I'm going to take this black kid and destroy his life because he's black." Nobody who works with kids is thinking that way. It is racism is like uh, it's like the chlorine in your water. It's there. You don't taste it, right? It it has an effect on the water, but it's not something that you even know that you're ingesting. It's in the air. It's the it's the subconscious assumptions we make about who somebody is and what they're about and what they value. And how do you how do you treat that? How do you get that chlorine out of the water? It's in the water we drink, and we drink it too. It's how we think about ourselves. It's how we think about ourselves. It's how we relate to authority. Like I can we can we could talk an hour about how black parents and white parents think about authority differently. You know, I've had, you know, like white parents believe, and I'm generalizing, by the way, I'm generalizing, but they believe that the institutions of state that are paid for their taxpayer dollars are there to work on their benefit. Whereas if you're black, you don't necessarily think about authority the same way. You think about authority that's there to, you know, upturn your apple cart, that's there to destroy your opportunities, that will lock you up or take away your opportunity. You know, I had a assistant principal working with me who was white, and we were having a whole thing with our kids being stopped and frisked. And he just didn't understand why it was a problem that if you weren't doing anything wrong, you shouldn't worry about it. And I said, then how many times have you been stopped and frisked? You see, never. I said, dude, I can't even count 20, 30 times. I said, I am, I'm in my late 40s, early 50s when I'm having this conversation. I said, even now, when a police car pulls behind me, my heart beats faster and my palms sweat because I'm wondering, is today the day? I've been put at gunpoint. I've been detained multiple times, never committed a crime, you know? So it's like these baseline assumptions about what the world is. I think we got 15 more minutes to solve it. Let's, let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> we can sit it for 15 minutes. Why not? Yeah. And, and I mean, what we, what we know, too, just from looking at these, the school, at least the school's context, is the there's two there seems to be two factors. It's the very clear racism built into our society, unconscious bias. It, they show that with referrals to detention and suspension and use of restraint and seclusion. Whatever the metric is, yeah. unconscious bias can be shown. The other part is they are also able to show some schools are just harder and harsher and it doesn't matter your race and you'll have mm-hmm. a you know a doubling effect again if if there's the unconscious yep. bias as well but they were able to separate it out and there's some schools and those schools are disproportionately in cities and low-income communities regardless of race again they were able to separate it out and say if you end up if you're unlucky enough to end up in a harsh disciplined school and then you're unlucky enough to also be receiving unconscious bias, those mm. factors together really amplify this to disproportionality. No. So it's, it's some, somewhere amongst those two things is really I, resulting I, I in these. The so. one thing that when I was still working that always upset me is that we keep on with this fiction that we don't know what to do. And that's what bothers me the most. Uh, we know a lot about how kids learn. We know a lot about how to help kids develop morally. We know a lot about how to, how to do the best thing by kids. There's a lot of research. Um, I'm, a, I'm a radical progressive. You know, I don't believe there should be private schools. I think that all schools should be public. 
I think that all kids should go to public schools. If you want to improve schooling, every, if everybody goes to the public school, the public schools are going to be awesome. And I think that we also know what works best for kids. We have a lot of research, but we don't do that. You know, we, we try to create this marketplace, a marketplace. Well, well, we'll let everybody do their own thing, and, you know, parents will send the kids the best options. It doesn't work. Our kids are always on the losing end of that stuff. You know, when it, it's never about doing what's best for all the kids. It's about creating some kind of a, a false comparison, these crazy competitions around test scores and data. Our kids get the short end of the stick. They're always on the losing end of that. So mm. what's best, what's good for one is good for all, right? How the, what does it do, how, how society treats the, the, you know, whatever it is. If you do the best thing for everybody, that's the only solution. You know, the idea that you have to do something different for black and Latino kids is insane. That's not borne out by research. It's not borne out by my experience. You know, when I uh, was a math teacher, I joined NCTM. I went to Bank Street. I learned about progressive education. And when I did what they do in the private schools, problem solving, my kids made these huge leaps and bounds in terms of the math scores. So what works for one kid works for all the kids. This idea that you have to do something different for these kids is uh, um, racist, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Best practices for every kid. Simple. I agree. Okay, so we got to the why, Ross, but maybe not the maybe not the solution just yet. Uh, I don't want but to per, perhaps you can help. Yeah. Perhaps you can help well, with the solution. I, I just want to <laughs> recap. Um, yes. The reason, the reason there is disproportionality of punitive exclusionary discipline in American public schools is because of racism and yeah. the fact that some schools are just plain a lot more harsh than others. Right. Now, not and, and, that, and, not me and our kids and the black and Latino kids are more vulnerable to that. We are more school dependent. I, you know, school dependent. Black and Latino kids. Maybe you know. Maybe you don't have any family that's been to college. Maybe you're low SES. The the lower your economic and cultural power, the more vulnerable you are to poor practices. You you can't a kid that has no resources. They can't. They don't have any ground. They don't have. They can't afford to lose the ground with bad adult practices. The bad adult practices destroy the lives of the vulnerable kids. Our kids are more vulnerable to bad adult practices. They get nothing in the gas tank. Sorry. So, and I'm not, um, I'm not underestimating any of those. Is there anything else contributing mm. to the disproportionality issue? Um, and Alex, before we're done, I know you've yeah. spoken. But I do want to answer that question first. But before we're done, I know you've spoken about your mentality as a black person and as an mm -hmm. administrator. I would love to hear more about what the kids were saying to you. Mm. Um, what, what did you hear from them, kids who um, ended up in your program as not necessarily the last 
stop, but as one of many stops along the disciplinary pipeline in New York City public schools. Um, I'd, sur- I'd love for you to give our listeners your sense about where those kids were coming from. What's interesting is they were still showing up, and a lot of them oh, yeah. had to go through hell and high water to actually be able to get mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. But let's go back to the original question, which is we've covered um, – some of the things that are contributing to disproportionality. Ben or uh, Alex, anything else coming into play? Because if we identify the problems, we might be able mm. to do something about them. Whether we can get the chlorine out of the water, that's a project that people have been trying to do for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe we've made some headway. Some people would say yes. Some people are skeptical about that. Um, is there anything else coming into play that's contributing to disproportionality? <clears throat> yeah. The the movement towards data, data and accountability. Yes. They, the whole world behind the data. Well, then the, for the last 15 years, it's been about high-stakes data and accountability, which creates a, a system of winners and losers, strangely. Our kids seem to always be on the losing end of that equation, you know, where if you uh, all the principals are trying to make AYP, adequate yearly progress. Now, for me, I was a principal for the 1.5%, right? I was in meetings with other principals down at the chancellor's office, and one guy got up and said, hey, I spend 95% of my time on 5% of my kids, and I said, yo, your 5%, that's my 100%. 100% of my kids are the 1.5%. What principals found out in the last few years of my principalship was that they could make AYP and throw my kids away. Like when you are trying to, you can move data without changing the lives of kids. If you're smart, you can make your AYP. And the amount of time and energy that principals spend and worry about moving their data is huge, huge. Ask any principal. You know, they worry about data all day and all night. They worry about data more than they worry about the individual kids. And the kids that have difficulty because of IEPs, the kids with behavior stuff, the kids I dealt with, the vulnerable kids, can easily be thrown away. You can get rid of that 1.5% and still move your school across the bar, which is smart principalship morally objectionable. Ben, it's bad for all kids. It's bad, bad for all kids. Bad for all kids, very bad for ours. Yeah. And I would just piggyback on what Alex is saying. I don't think this is another factor, another problem piece, but it is gasoline, which is that it's really dependent on the administration. So if the administration is putting pressure on teachers to pursue data, et cetera, or if the teachers are putting pressure on their administrators to say, hey, I'm overwhelmed. I don't have the mm-hmm. training to support these three kids that are causing a lot of trouble in my right. classroom. And the answer that is provided by the principal, if they're not Alex, is we can, we can get this kid out of your hair. We can right. get these kids out of your classroom. And so I don't, I don't see that as another disproportionality factor, but I think once you put 
extra pressure on somebody who already has an unconscious bias in a school that's already overly harsh, you're going to get more amplified response, more exclusion, more punitive discipline. Like the last few years of my principalship, New York City successfully decreased their suspension numbers. How do they do it? Were kids all of a sudden doing better? No. They just weren't suspending them. What they were doing was throwing them into a room by, in the school, separated from everybody else, and doing what they used to do, throwing a videotape, let the kids run wild. They could throw those kids away, because some of them would end up coming to us eventually after they would really go buck wild, and they say, oh, Spencer, we weren't doing anything. No, I wasn't suspended in September. It took till January, but I was sitting in a the room. They had us doing nothing all day because the principal, there is no benefit. There, there is no benefit to a principal who's got to make AYP to spend his time trying to figure out what to do with those 15 kids causing havoc. There's no benefit. He can throw those kids away. Oh, I can't suspend them? i, I got to get my suspension numbers down? Fine. I'll put them in room 301 with Mr. Johnson, who's about to retire, and keep moving with moving my, my test scores. Keep working on test prep. Get these kids out the way. So the kids can be thrown away because there are prisons waiting for them upstate, there are suspension sites if you need them, those kids get thrown away. And as a society, we're fine with it. We don't like those kids anyway. They make us uncomfortable. We're kind of scared of them. We feel fine throwing away the 1.5%. Throw them away, who needs them? And these are kids, you know, they're unlucky, man. They're unlucky. They get thrown away. Talk a little bit, if you would. We only have about three minutes left. I would, we may not get to solutions today, but solutions is a whole other program. Talk a little bit and, uh, about what your experience was of what it was like to be one of those kids. What they say to you? Mm. To be one of those kids? Yeah. What did you hear them telling you about um, their experience of school? their experience about how they were treated, and their thoughts mm. about what the future held for them. Mm. You know, kids really, really, really pay attention to be adults, right? And when I would sit my office with a kid, he could run down the adults in his school. He would tell you who was who. And they always knew the adults that they could go to, And they also knew the adults that they had to avoid. And for a lot of the kids in the high schools and middle schools, there were certain deans that they felt had it out for them because I guess deans were given that job. So they would sit and talk a lot about what adults they couldn't stand and what adults they felt did not have their best interests at heart, that they had to avoid. They had to almost like hide from these people because if they ran into them, they'd end up suspended again. You know, and the kids were always looking for an adult who they could talk to. They're always looking, well, what, you know, what is the door they can knock on? And now you'd ask them, like, who, who do you talk to? And they can always tell you. You know, we always think to be the kids are not listening and thinking about us. No, they're thinking about the adults more than they're thinking about the content. They don't care about the content. They're always trying to figure out what adult is friendly. What adult can I talk to? What adult can I go to if I'm having a hard time? That's one thing. And, they, and, and all kids are like that, and these kids especially, because for them, their survival – kind of depended on finding an adult that would, like, have their back, would take their side, would listen to their problem. 
And they can always ben, tell me, oh, any you know, final thought? Yeah. Yeah. I would I would piggyback on Alex's thought. I'm in the hundreds of IEP meetings that I've been to and kids that I've worked with, they really are looking for someone to trust and someone that understands them and can empathize. And all my clients were kids with disabilities. And sometimes the whole thrust of the IEP meeting might be, how do we identify this person? The same one that Alex mm-hmm. is talking about. So yep. who's going to be, it, and, it, and it's not predictable who that person no. is. It's some type of personal connection that the kiddo made. Yep. Uh, and it's not always the social worker. It could be the gym teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's <laughs> such an important, <laughs> such an important piece. That's obviously not our big solution for this, but it's, it's a necessary factor to have trusted adults in kiddos' mm-hmm. lives. Yep. And then we can get the yep. solutions from there. Yeah, and it doesn't take much, man. One little kind word, and the kid, the one kind word, one gesture, the kid loves you for life. It's amazing. They need it so much. Ben and Alex, we really appreciate your time and your thoughtfulness about this and your willingness to talk about it. We're going to call it a day for today, but I have a feeling this is not going to be the end of this conversation. But thank you both so much for participating. We'll be back next month. Take care, all. Thank you.